We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Thank you so much for tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast. This is a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate in discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, eerie folklore tales, urban legends, along with the occasional conspiracy theory to provide you and more than likely what Robin Sparkles may just consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, we're revisiting a previously covered distraction, a Canadian true crime one to be specific. But before we get into that, I have a little bit of housekeeping to cover before I'll fill you in on what I need a distraction from. As always, if you want to hear your need for a distraction, whether it's, I don't know, maybe a project at work you want to distract yourself from, or maybe it's a bad breakup, whatever it may be, feel free to send it my way at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com or feel free to shoot me a DM on the show's social media platforms. In terms of housekeeping, I've got one negative piece of housekeeping and then one positive housekeeping tidbit. First off, for the negative, as a reminder, the podcast Patreon page will be closing down effective at the end of this month. I just want to thank everyone quickly for their support, patience, and kindness during this decision, since you all know it wasn't really an easy one to say the least. Secondly, and the more positive piece of housekeeping, midweek mini spooks are coming back. Keep an eye out on the podcast social media pages for more information. If you're tuning in to this specific episode for the very first time, midweek mini spooks is a mini spooky series that I like to do in the month of October to celebrate spooky season, aka my favorite time of year. Last year, I did a theme for the very first time, and that was Ominous Ontario, so it was different haunted hotspots within my province of Ontario. I do have a theme this year. I'm not going to say it quite yet, but I'm just going to suggest you keep your eyes on the podcast social media accounts, because there will be something coming out very shortly. In terms of my need for a distraction this week, I would have to say my need for a distraction is I completed the first week of my, I don't know, mandatory training and it kind of sucked. I'm not going to lie. I feel as though it made me cranky. It made me sleep deprived because the accommodations we had, not great. And it's hard to explain because I obviously can't give details. I kind of want to keep this job a bit private, so to speak, but the training just did not meet my expectations. I feel as though it left me with more questions than answers, which I don't know, maybe that's what a good training is supposed to do. I feel like that's not right, but regardless, I'm still doing training at work right now. It's all virtual this week, so that's been just lovely. And I still have one more test I have to do, which I feel it's weird having to do tests for work. I could understand certain jobs having tests just to make sure that you're up to date with policies and procedures or what have you. But yeah, I'm just not used to that. And I have really bad test anxiety. So needless to say, this whole experience has been weirdly stressful. There's been good parts. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, just weird. So that's my need for a distraction this week. Again, if you have a need for a distraction, I would love to hear from you. But without further ado, I think it's time we get into this week's episode.
I remember when former co-host Christy and I first covered this case. It was within the first year of the show being out, and it actually came out over three years ago this month, which is wild to say out loud. If you're a newer listener to the show and you're wondering why I keep redoing old episodes from this previous era of the show, well, because a lot has changed. I now host solo. I have better editing software, courtesy of my network, which makes the audio hopefully sound a lot better in comparison to what it once was when Christy and I were starting the show. And I'd like to say that my research and note-taking has vastly improved. With that being said, this week I take us back to Hamilton, Ontario, within the country of Canada, to rediscuss the life and crimes of Evelyn Dick. Due to potential coarse language, distressing topics such as mentions of sexual assault, familial violence, and other disturbing adult themes that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Evelyn McLean was born to parents Donald and Alexandra on October 13, 1920, in Beamsville, Ontario, which is near Niagara Falls. About a year after Evelyn entered this world, the McLean family relocated from Beamsville to Hamilton, Ontario, specifically to a home located at 214 Roslyn Avenue. Hamilton will forever be a city I poke fun at, when in reality, it's not a bad place to visit. I remember when Christy and I first chatted about this case. We talked about our post-secondary experiences in Hamilton, how questionable and perhaps borderline scary they were. By no means did we mean to cause any harm, but I've come to realize that maybe I need to be more gentle about the old Hammertown. For folks who have no idea where I'm talking about, Hamilton is just over an hour west from Toronto, being the capital of Ontario. Donald, Evelyn's father, ended up landing a job as a streetcar conductor with the Hamilton Street Railway, aka HSR, eventually landing himself an office job within this field. Now, Donald and Alexandra would apparently live a very above-their-means lifestyle according to reports. Yes, Donald had a good job, but based on how much he and Alexandra were spending, it wasn't really adding up. The McLean family were known to display their wealth actively, often throwing lavish parties and spending money freely on acquaintances. On the outside looking in, the McLean family looked like they had it together. It looked like they were living the Canadian dream. And yet there was a lot allegedly going on behind closed doors. Donald apparently was known to be somewhat of an alcoholic, and Alexandra was known to have a quote, wicked temper. Not only that, there are also some reports that Evelyn was actually sexually abused by Donald. I only saw this in one resource, so I'm not sure the actuality of this claim. I don't want to say yes, I believe it's true because who am I to judge and who am I to say? What I will say, though, is based on what I came across online, Evelyn's childhood was unorthodox, for a lack of a better description. And if that was the case, if Donald was assaulting her, then it's just more layers of trauma we're dealing with here. Evelyn's childhood was very closed off from the rest of the world. Reports claim her parents didn't allow her to play or interact much with children in her area. The McLean parents reportedly felt that Evelyn was too fragile to spend time with the neighborhood kids. At some point, her parents pulled her out of public school and actually sent her to a prestigious private school called Loretto Academy. Despite seemingly keeping Evelyn away from her peers, the McLeans would throw these lavish parties where it seemed like money wasn't a concern and they were trying to socialize with other people around them at a higher socioeconomic status. 
But it should have been a concern, especially at the level they were spending. Alexander didn't work, and even though Donald, again, had an okay job, the wealth they were promoting just didn't really seem... legit. As such, rumors began swirling around speculating that Donald was maybe stealing from his job. Regardless of the rumors, the facade carried on. As Evelyn grew up, she appeared to develop a persona of being this up-and-coming wealthy socialite. She was known to wear lavish jewelry, furs, and often spent time at the racetracks where, like her parents, she would not hide her money away from anyone. Evelyn would try really hard to make friends, but accounts claim she struggled to really have true friends. Evelyn mostly seemed to have fake friends who enjoyed being around her for the clout, but weren't really there for her emotionally. This may be an assumption, but it just didn't really seem like anyone was there for Evelyn. And I have this assumption based on the following quote from Murderpedia. Quote, Evelyn would host lavish parties at the Royal Connaught Hotel, Hamilton's finest, and spend money freely on acquaintances. Her social acceptance was never reciprocated in the way she wanted, end quote. Now, when Evelyn was a teenager, there would be rumors swirling around Hamilton that she was spending time with older men. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia website, Alexandra would encourage Evelyn to use her good looks to entice men into buying her expensive gifts. And this apparently worked, as these rumors would state that Evelyn was linked to several wealthy and prominent men from the Hamilton and surrounding areas. This was considered very hot tea at the time, and the scandal levels would blossom furthermore when Evelyn then gave birth to her daughter, Heather, in 1942. At the time, 22-year-old Evelyn was technically unmarried, making the birth of Heather seem mucho scandalous. But Evelyn announced that she was married to a man stationed overseas by the last name of White. No first name, no identifying characteristics, all she gave us was a last name. Although later on, it was discovered that there were no military reports providing existence of such a person. In other words, whoever Heather's father is continues to remain a mystery to this day. Speaking of, Heather White was born with a cognitive impairment that reportedly would require much attention from her mother and her grandparents. There wasn't really much detail about Heather other than that, and of course, some of the resources I came across used very outdated language to talk about Heather's cognitive impairment, but alas, that's all we unfortunately know about Heather. Two years later, Evelyn gave birth to a son named Peter David White on September 5th of 1944. Here's where things get weird and, well, actually, just plain sad. Evelyn apparently came home after giving birth to Peter without Peter. Supposedly, Evelyn told her mother, Alexandra, that she gave up her son Peter to the Children's Aid Society because, quote, we don't need another child in this house. And further, quote, dad doesn't want me to have another child in this house, end quote. Alas, it was just back to being Donald, Alexandra, Evelyn, and Heather in the McLean home located on Roslyn Avenue. But by June of 1945, Evelyn, Heather, and Alexandra moved into an apartment together in downtown Hamilton. Alexandra had recently separated from Evelyn's dad, Donald, and I presume she moved in with Evelyn and Heather in order to help the pair out. There were three generations of McLean women under one roof. It sounds like a perfect sitcom narrative, if you think about it. But it wouldn't stay all girl power and pearls for long. 
About a month or so into the new downtown accommodations, Evelyn shook her mother and everybody else by announcing that she was going to marry a man by the name of John Dick. From what I gathered, John was born on May 25th of 1906 in Halbstadt, Russia, and he was allegedly a conductor for the Hamilton Street Railway, aka the same place where Evelyn's father, Donald, worked at. For those like me who can't do quick math in their head, John was 14 years older than Evelyn, however some accounts say he was 15 or older. Here comes another plot twist. Alexandra had no idea who John was, and Alexandra would reportedly call out her own daughter because Evelyn was apparently supposed to be dating a man by the name of Bill Bohozuk at this time. So Alexandra's under this impression that her daughter's been dating this Bill guy for some time, and then all of a sudden she comes home one day. I imagine maybe she has like a loaf of bread under her arm. She's like, oh, hey, mom. Hey, Heather. Uh, yeah, everything's great. By the way, I'm getting married soon. Oh, not to Bill, to this guy named John. If I was Alexandra, I would have 20 questions, if not more. I would be like, who, what, when, where, why, how? On October 4th in 1945, 25-year-old Evelyn and 39-year-old John were married at the Church of Ascension located at 64 Forest Ave in Hamilton. Sources claim that both Donald and Alexandra were unhappy with John and Evelyn's relationship, and thus, supposedly neither parent attended the wedding. Despite the wedded bliss on the outside, the marriage between John and Evelyn was far from rainbows and butterflies. Based on some of the sources I came across, the couple separated only five days after they got married. Now, what would separate the newlyweds? What was it that crumbled any trace of any kind of foundation in this relationship? I've gathered that, for starters, Evelyn believed John was a man of money. Shortly after the wedding, though, she supposedly realized that he was not as well off financially as maybe she had hoped. Then there is the additional narrative that Evelyn had cheated on John, which may not be shocking given the potential crossover of Evelyn's relationship with Bill Bohozak and her quick marriage to John Dick. Alexandra would later share she suspected the affair was with Bill, perhaps suggesting that the relationship between the pair never really ended, aka Evelyn married John while she was still with Bill and then she just kept hanging out with Bill despite being married to John. Just a messy love triangle going on here. Speaking of Bill, one resource noted that Evelyn resumed her relationship with Bill when she realized John wasn't rich. In a direct quote from the Canadian Encyclopedia website to elaborate further, quote, Dick believed that he and Evelyn could make their marriage work, and he convinced her to move into a house with him. Their time together was stormy, especially because of Evelyn's relationships with Bohuzuk and other boyfriends. Dick soon moved out of the house, the deed being in Evelyn's name and lodged with a cousin, end quote. Which let me fill you in on the whole housing bit because it's a little confusing here. So during their brief marriage, Evelyn still kept the apartment she had with her mother, but then also purchased a home at 32 Carrick Avenue with John. However, from my understanding, and this was repeated numerous times, Evelyn bought the house, it was in her name, and John financially had nothing to do with it, hence why he moved out. Speaking of John moving out, he would go on to move in with his cousin, Alex, and his cousin's wife, Anne, who also lived in Hamilton. His cousin, Alex, will come back in the story later on. Also, I will apologize now. I forgot to mention at the very beginning of this recording, there's going to be a lot of names. So I'll try to emphasize who is who and remind you like, hey, this is her dad or hey, this is so-and-so. Hopefully that helps. 
Heartbroken and perhaps desperate, John apparently goes to Evelyn's father, Donald, begging Donald for help in making Evelyn go back to John. Although his approach was on the lines of getting her to, quote, behave like a respectful wife. So John comes in hot, I'm assuming, one day to Donald and was like, hey, Donald, like, I'm still in love with Evelyn. I want things to work. Help me make your daughter a better wife. And Donald apparently looks at John and says no. In which, yes, good for Donald. His daughter is a grown-ass woman and she can do it what she pleases. But John didn't like this response. Also fair. I mean, hey, the approach wasn't great. Maybe don't tell a grown man to tell his grown daughter to behave like a good wife. But... I, I think John's just beside himself at this point. Regardless, John doesn't like this response. He then threatens Donald that he will snitch on Donald stealing money from the Hamilton Street Railway. It turns out the rumors were true. Evelyn had revealed her father's secret to John that he had been stealing money from his employer for some time. In retaliation, Donald threatened to kill John. So it went from, hey, I'm going to snitch on you because you've been stealing money and you're not willing to help me get your daughter back with me, to I'm going to kill you. This is all very dramatic if you ask me, but hey, this is what happened apparently. Once the death threat was on the table, apparently John ran off and told the Hamilton police. He was like, nope, I'm not going to mess around with this situation. I'm not sure if anything transpired with Donald and him telling the Hamilton police. There was nothing I could find after the fact that would suggest anything, but yeah, it, things escalated really fast. We've got a lot going on with these folks. A quick marriage that broke down before it even really started. We've got multiple rumors involving Evelyn and her family. We've got desperation. We've got secrets. We've got infidelity. We've got the makings of a really good album, if you ask me. But all of this would be no match to the weird, tragic events that would transpire next. John was last seen alive on March 6, 1946, at the now-former Windsor Hotel in Hamilton. Supposedly, he was there for lunch, and now I can't speak to whether it was his last meal or not, and quite frankly, I don't really know what actually happened on this day for John. What has been documented goes as follows. Bear in mind, the details are quite grisly. On Saturday, March 16th, a group of five children were wandering around Hamilton's escarpment, or what locals call the mountain. I'm sure their curious minds were set ablaze when they found what first looked like a body of a headless pig laying partway down the side of the escarpment. However, it wasn't a headless pig laying amongst the trees, but rather the naked torso of an adult male with two gunshot wounds in the chest. The head, arms, and legs were missing and nowhere to be found nearby. Local police were called to the scene, where it was discovered that there was a deep wound in the abdomen, suggesting to investigators that someone had tried to cut the torso itself in two. One word of the unknown torso found by children was being passed along the city, 
John's cousin, Alexander had reported to police concerns that this was perhaps John. Alexander explained to officials that John had been missing since March 6, and that John, prior to his disappearance, was living with Alex and his wife after his short-lived marriage had crumbled. The torso found by those five children on that March day would be later identified as being John Dick. The cause of death was deemed likely a gunshot to the head by pathologist Dr. William Deadman. In which you're probably wondering, how is that possible without knowing where the head was? Well, according to a Hamilton Spectator article, the torso had two superficial bullet wounds in the chest that would have not necessarily killed John. So, Dr. Deadman believed that John's cause of death was likely a gunshot to the head, something that, of course, could not be proven because the head was not found at the time of the examination. But, given the fact that there were gunshot wounds to the torso, that's, I guess, where Dr. Deadman had believed, okay, if he was hit in the torso superficially, maybe they eventually aimed the gun at the head, which ultimately would have killed John. Sidebar, Dr. Deadman is an amazing last name. I feel like if that is your last name, you have to become a doctor or you have to work in the funeral industry. Like, it's just meant to be. It's chef's kiss. Anyways, police would learn that John was married to Evelyn McLean and that the relationship was quite rocky. Because of this, Evelyn was taken in to police custody for questioning by Detective Sergeant Clarence Preston soon after the body was identified. Evelyn goes in without any issues reported, but what she has to say, in retrospect, was a little bit of an issue. Evelyn apparently barely seemed shocked about the news of John that was spreading across Hamilton like a flock of Canadian geese at a local park. Her response to police was simply, quote, don't look at me, I don't know anything about it, in response to her estranged husband being dead. Evelyn then proceeded to spin a tale of how a fancy-dressed Italian man came to her home and stated that he was looking for John and how he was going to fix John for messing around with his wife. Evelyn indicated she had no clue who this man was, and that this man just left without telling Evelyn his name. Basically, all he said was that he had beef with John and dipped. Days after this conversation with Evelyn, police discovered that Evelyn had recently borrowed a large Packard vehicle from a man named Bill Landig, an acquaintance of hers, apparently. After further investigation, it was learned that the car was returned to Bill Landig with blood covering the front seat. Bill was not at the garage when Evelyn had returned it, and so I don't think there was a big hoorah by Bill over the blood at the time. The vehicle's seat covers were also missing, and they found bloody clothing within the vehicle. And I think it's safe to say, on the outside looking in, this is all very sus on Evelyn's part. But of course, she had a response. She supposedly left a note for Bill Landig explaining that the mess was due to her daughter, Heather. According to this narrative, Heather had accidentally cut herself and made this bloody mess all over the car, leaving Evelyn to have to do what she could to try and tidy it up, but she didn't get all of it. But the blood wasn't Heather's. Although forensics didn't have DNA analysis, they at least could test blood types. It turns out the blood type wasn't Heather's, but it did match with John's blood type. Facing police again and perhaps trying to redeem herself, Evelyn then apparently discloses to police saying that she got a call from a mystery man who told her that John was having an affair and that the woman he was having an affair with was pregnant. Now, when confronted with this, Evelyn stated that this mystery man had called Evelyn to make it known that John was 
quote, going to get what he had coming. This man proceeded to then ask Evelyn if the two of them could meet up so that he could borrow a vehicle from Evelyn. Evelyn claims she agrees to meet with this man. She meets up with him, and when she meets him, he has this large sack with him. And within this sack, this random guy tells Evelyn that it was, quote, a part of John. Evelyn further noted she helped this mysterious man drive the sack and dump it where the children would later find what they thought was the headless pig. In other words, Evelyn's saying, hey, the blood wasn't Heather's, you got me. I don't know, maybe it was John in the sack. I have no idea. I was just helping this random guy. Again, I have nothing really to do with this. I'm just kind of a bystander in this whole narrative that's going on. Now, being compliant with officials, Evelyn would take police to where she and this mysterious man dumped John's torso. All the while, her responses, according to police, were inappropriate. In a direct quote from the Evelyn Dick website to explain further, quote, When asked if it was all alarming to her that her husband's body was in the vehicle, she said she wasn't happy about his demise, but that it was a, quote, pretty mean trick to break up a home, referring evidently to the woman who Dick had allegedly impregnated. She empathetically denied conspiring to kill her husband, end quote. For those trying to keep track, Evelyn has weaved a total of two different tales regarding John's death and her maybe not involvement. And, I hate to say it, but she was far from being done. Evelyn would go on to tell a third narrative, where she would even sign a second statement claiming involvement of Italian killers who sought after John Dick. These Italian killers were, hold your breath for this one, reportedly hired by Bill Bohozak. If you don't remember who that is, Bill Bohozak was the one that Evelyn was in a relationship with when all of a sudden she's like, oh, I'm marrying John. And then potentially the one she was having a long-term affair with while married to John. So Bill Bohozak is just popping his head back in the situation again. Even though Evelyn is telling these narratives and she's placing herself kind of on the outskirts of the crime, every time she tells a new narrative, it seems like she's giving more details to what actually happened the closer she gets to police. It's as if the closer she got to investigators, the more her stories changed and the wheels of her narratives continue to loosen. We'll get to it, but they do eventually fall off the tracks and we kind of sort of ish figure out what happened. As police were getting closer to finding out the truth, they obtained access to Evelyn's Carrick Avenue home. Now, as a reminder, Carrick Avenue was the home that Evelyn purchased for her and John around their wedding, where she would reside after their separation. While searching the home, police discovered a beige suitcase within the basement. I don't know if to them it looked a little suspicious, but regardless, they see it. They're like, hey, what's inside? Inside the suitcase was a gruesome, puzzling, and tragic scene. The suitcase was filled with concrete, and in the concrete were the remains of a baby boy. Alexandra, Evelyn's mother, informed police that she had seen her estranged husband, Donald, at this suitcase the day before the investigation. So the day before police came, Alexandra sees Donald. He's fiddling around with this beige suitcase. Once Alexandra approaches Donald, he tells her to get the hell out of the room. Like, get, go, like, don't, stay away from me. Alexandra remembers this and is like, hey, by the way, I see you found this beige suitcase. Donald was being weird around it yesterday, just an FYI. The baby was believed to be baby Peter, who Evelyn claimed she gave up for adoption to the Children's Aid Society after giving birth to him. 
The cause of death of baby Peter was later deemed to be suffocation. Evelyn was confronted about Peter's remains being found in such a horrific manner within her home and was also informed that Bill Bohozuk had been brought in for questioning. You might be wondering, okay, how did Evelyn respond? What kind of intricate narrative did she throw at investigators this time around? Well, Evelyn told yet another story, being the fourth addition to this murderous saga. Evelyn pointed her finger at Bill Bohosa, claiming he had murdered baby Peter and John Dick as well. But police weren't buying this new fourth tale by any means. And on top of the police's disbelief, they also found some incriminating evidence that went against Evelyn's claims. The website, Murderpedia, noted that police discovered bullet holes in a pipe, a revolver and its cartridges, along with saws and blood-stained shoes that were later believed to be John Dick's in Donald McLean's basement, aka the 214 Roslyn Avenue location. And I believe this is where Donald was living alone around this time that all this was going on. Further searches at this location resulted in the discovery of charred human bones and bits of clothing, which were later discovered to be bits of the Hamilton Street Railway uniform. It's possible that the uniform could have been Donald's. It's very possible that one day he came home from work and he was burnt out, pun intended, and maybe just burned his uniform for that reason. However, just as a little reminder, John Dick also worked at the Hamilton Street Railway. So let's put two and two together here. It's looking a little sus. It was believed by investigators that Donald and Bill Bohozuk murdered John and perhaps Peter with the assistance of Evelyn. Having said that, the three were indicted on murder charges of John Dick. On top of this, Evelyn and Bill were charged with the murder of baby Peter. Donald was also charged with robbing the Hamilton Street Railway of thousands of dollars. So everybody's getting dinged, everyone's being brought in, and now it's time for the trial to figure out, okay, what actually happened. The trial, which began on October 7th of 1946 at Hamilton's Wentworth County Courthouse, aired out a lot of evidence that would point the finger at Evelyn being behind the murders of Peter and John, along with her described promiscuous lifestyle. There was this huge focus on the fact that Evelyn was, to many, this pretty young woman tied up in these love affairs that eventually turned deadly. And I'd like to say it was like this because of the era of journalism and how crime cases were highlighted, but we all know this still happens today. And we all know that the actual highlight should be the victims and not love triangle gone bad. It should be focusing on the victims. Evelyn's defense team did play into this, though, played into, you know, Evelyn being in this love triangle and how she was just this pretty little thing. And how could she do all this bad if she's just so pretty? So they played into it. And one resource noted that her defense team actually moved to have her tried separately from Bill and Donald in the hope that this would allow Evelyn to appear before the jury as just this attractive, innocent young woman seemingly incapable of committing murder, according to the Canadian Encyclopedia website. Evelyn and her personal life were being put on this trial for the entire city and arguably the entire country to kind of gawk at. 
On top of the lid of Evelyn's private life being ripped open during the trial, her father's life was also uncovered. There was a lot of shine on what Donald McLean was up to. Reports claim that Donald was dubbed an alcoholic and his thieving from his employer would become another blow to the McLean family reputation. In total, Donald took a whopping $200,000, which let's say that was in 1946 Canadian currency. In 2023, that would be an approximate approximate $3.148 million. That's quite a bit of money. Focusing back on the trial, Alexandra, Evelyn's mother, agreed to testify for the Crown against her daughter in return for immunity. During the trial, Alexandra claimed that Evelyn had been absent from the house for a prolonged period of time on March 6, aka the last day John Dick had been seen alive. By March 8th, Alexandra disclosed that she had asked Evelyn if something bad had happened to John. I don't know if maybe he was coming around a little bit before March 6th or what was going on, but according to Alexandra, Evelyn responded that John wouldn't be coming around anymore. Furthermore, Alexandra also testified that her husband, Donald, owned not only a handgun, but he also owned a large butcher's knife. A psychiatrist would be brought in to Evelyn's trial for further evaluation, where they had a hard time, I think, actually diagnosing her with anything. They kind of questioned her intelligence because to them, they thought that she had this mental capacity of a 13-year-old girl. Even though many who knew Evelyn thought this diagnosis or even this notion was weird because to them, Evelyn was extremely intelligent and manipulative. Even though some suspect that Evelyn did not physically commit the murder with her own hands, she was found guilty by participating in the planning and follow-through of the crime. The trial lasted for about nine days, in which some of the resources I came across indicated that some think the evidence of Evelyn being involved with John's death was circumstantial. There is no evidence or anything to indicate any motive on the part of Evelyn to murder John Dick. Yes, their marriage didn't work, but was that worth murdering him over? After only taking two hours of consulting, the jury would find Evelyn guilty for the murder of John Dick, where she was sentenced to death by hanging with a scheduled date of January 7th of 1947, despite the jury providing a recommendation to mercy. Donald was found guilty as an accessory after the fact and was sentenced five years incarceration. Bill supposedly walked free after an acquittal. Now, Evelyn would not see her death penalty as she went on to appeal the verdict. This appeal went to trial and, shocking to some, it was overturned. To explain further, here's a direct quote from the History of Rights website, which the link will be listed in today's show notes if you want to read it further. Quote, Speaking broadly, the appeal is taken on two grounds. One, that the learned trial judge made errors of non-direction and misdirection in his charge to the jury, and two, that certain statements alleged to have been made by the appealant to police officers while in custody had been wrongly admitted in evidence against her. In the view of the disposition to be made of this appeal, it is not desirable that there should be an exhaustive discussion of the evidence on the record, but only such statement of it as may be necessary to make intelligible upon the grounds here and before set forth the appeal should be allowed and the conviction should be set aside and there should be a new trial, end quote. 
So Evelyn's conviction for the murder of John was eventually dropped, but she still needed to attend to the trial about baby Peter. Evelyn was found guilty of manslaughter in relation to the death of Peter and was sentenced to life in prison at Kingston Penitentiary. Once at Kingston Penitentiary, Evelyn was reportedly a model inmate. There were no concerns, there were no issues. She was a shining star for, I guess, a lack of better description. Perhaps in part of her compliance, Evelyn was granted parole on November 10th of 1958. Evelyn, who is then approximately 38 years old, would leave Kingston and go completely off the grid. By 1985, her convictions were pardoned under the royal prerogative of mercy which meant that she no longer had to report to police or to the parole board regarding her previous offenses. On top of this, it meant that her file was sealed forever, forever holding all the intricate documentation surrounding Evelyn's life behind bars and during her parole. Evelyn Dick, convicted for manslaughter of her own son and successful appealant on murder charges of her estranged husband, was free to live her life. And that perhaps she did, but it was all in secret. Again, Evelyn went off-grid and seemingly vanished from the former spotlight she once held. People have speculated that Evelyn had perhaps moved to London, Ontario, while others thought that maybe she went back to Hamilton after her time in Kingston. An author named Brian Valley shared their belief in their book about Evelyn titled Torso Murder, The Untold Story of Evelyn Dick which pointed to the possibility that Evelyn married again after her release to a wealthy man before moving to the west coast of Canada, where she was given a new identity and another shot at life. If alive today, which this isn't out of the realm of possibility, Evelyn would be about 103 years old. No one knows where she landed, who she married, if she had kids, nothing. Speaking of the unknowns, John Dick's murder has never been solved, which that traumatic loss of his family and friends has only had to been passed down generation after generation. I also don't have any information on what happened to Heather, Donald, or Alexandra. I'm not sure if Brian's book, Torso Murder, The Untold Story of Evelyn Dick, discussed the aftermath or not in depth. Unfortunately, it's on my reading list. I didn't have a chance to read it before today's episode. I also did not watch the movie based on the case, but I did see that apparently the movie sort of suggests that Evelyn took the fall for the crimes to protect her parents. Again, I couldn't watch the movie as I wasn't able to stream it or rent it anywhere online, but if you've seen it, let me know. It's apparently called Torso. There's one thing that I want to mention to you all before I wrap up this week's episode. At some point during the heat of John's murder trial, a chant about Evelyn was created among school kids alike. It's sort of similar to the infamous Lizzie Borden rhyme, but this rendition for Evelyn goes, You cut off his legs, you cut off his arms, you cut off his head. How could you, Mrs. Dick? How could you, Mrs. Dick? I hope you all have learned something about the murder of John Dick and baby Peter, along with the very odd and mysterious life of Evelyn Dick. I also hope you are enjoying the re-releases of previous Weird Distractions episodes. I won't lie, it has helped in doing these due to my hectic scheduling, and you know what, it's nice just to revisit and see if anything has changed. I do have a couple of questions for you all, though. A little bit of homework, if you will. The first one being, do you think Evelyn had anything to do with the murders of John and baby Peter? 
And what do you think happened to her after she was released from incarceration? Do you think she stayed in the country? Do you think she went back to Hamilton? Let me know your thoughts on today's episode on the podcast social media accounts or feel free to shoot me an email. Speaking of social media accounts, please keep your eyes peeled for the midweek mini spooks, which are coming out very, very soon. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, anyone who you think needs a distraction about the show. Doing so is one of the best ways to support this show for free. Speaking of supporting the podcast for free, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into. When it comes to any corrections that need to be made or perhaps some constructive feedback, please feel free to send me an email at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Are you looking to rep some Weird Distractions merch? Please check out the link in today's show notes for the bonfire link. It's never a bad time to treat somebody you love or perhaps treat yourself. Although the Patreon page is currently on an indefinite hiatus, I just want to thank the previous patrons of the show. Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Shadow, Courtney, Cheryl, Susan, Jennifer, and Kristen. Thank you for supporting the Patreon page. I truly appreciate every single one of you. For those on social media, Weird Distractions can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok, and Facebook. Lastly, I'm always wanting to hear from you. I'm looking to hear about your weird paranormal encounters, maybe too close to home true crime cases, and other weird experiences that you're willing to share to be featured on a future Listener Distractions episode. No matter how short, how long, spooky, or just weird, send your tales my way to, again, the show's email address being weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.